Welcome to Berean Beacon. Richard Bennett, converted Catholic priest, now evangelist, presents Berean Beacon. Your comments and questions will be greatly appreciated. Write to Richard Bennett, PO Box 192, Dell Valley, that's D-E-L-V-A-L-L-E, Texas, 78617. Permission is given to record and copy the entire message. And now, here is Richard Bennett. I wish to exalt Christ Jesus like we had Valerie in her testimony doing, to exalt him and to see him in the riches of his grace. I should have died on the 16th of March, 1972. I was at that stage nine years into the priesthood. I was 34 years of age. I'd gone to play Scrabble in somebody's home and instead of walking up the 24 steps, I jumped a little fence at the top, tried to knock on the door, but I slipped and I fell down splitting the back of my head and damaging my back spine. The priest who anointed me said he thought I was dead besides being scalped. And it wasn't simply the head, it was the back spine that had been injured as well. Three days later when I came to, I was in mental as well as physical pain. Months afterwards when I got out of the Catholic nursing home, I would still shake because... I had damaged my whole nervous system. I was like somebody coming off drugs. It was a colossal turning point. I used to boast before that I had never committed any mortal sin in my life. I wondered if I died, where would I have gone? I now know where I would have gone, where all devout Pharisees go. where all who look to their own righteousness and their own rituals. And I thank God that God who is rich in mercy, as we read the very first verse here, God who is rich in mercy, but God, that was my life, but God, if it wasn't for God saving physically my life, I would this day be in hell a devout Pharisee of Pharisees for having insulted God not knowing that I was doing it. So that's where the turning point came in my life. It was then that I began to read the scriptures and it was very painful because I did not want to know what I was saying. Just a little resume before that. I grew up in Ireland highly devout Catholic family. We prayed to Mary every evening in the rosary and finished with Hail Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, Hail our life, our sweetness and our hope. Mary was our sweetness and our hope. We went to confession. We always went to Mass. Did penances even as a young boy, trained by the Jesuits in all my elementary, all my secondary education. At the end of my secondary school, I had memorized the words of Pius XII, that gaunt, thin, saint-looking Pope. I still know them by heart. 
Great mystery this and source of unending contemplation that the salvation of many should depend on the prayers and sacrifices of the members of the mystical body of Christ offered for this intention. Word for word from Mr. G. Corporus, the mystical body of Christ, words of Pius XII. The salvation of many depending on prayers and sacrifices. I wanted to do sacrifices and prayers so that I could die in the state of sanctifying grace and get others into sanctifying grace by prayer and sacrifices. It was exactly the same that Mary was supposed to have said at Fatima. Many souls go to hell because there's nobody to pray or do penance for them. So I was intent. I loved tennis. I loved going to dances. I loved, you know, I loved life, but I said, no, I'm going to give it up. I'm going to go into a priory, a Dominican priory. I'm going to do monastic type of life. I'm going to suffer so that souls can be saved. Let me give it all up. And that's what I did. I went into the Dominican order. I bought a Bible before going in. It was a Catholic Bible, thinking they were going to study the Bible. The first year was all devotional. Mental prayer, quite mystical stuff, and uh, you know, of communion and direct union with what we call infused contemplation, where you could have direct contact with God and that sort of thing. Mental prayer, divine office, office of Mary, office of the dead once a week, all the different rosaries, stations of the cross, and then we had different talks that were given to us not centered on the Bible, but centered on saints and tradition. We did read the Bible under the tradition of the Catholic Church in the Mass and in the different feasts of Mary and the saints and of Christ in what was called the liturgical year, but we didn't study the Bible as such. Then we would have seven years of intense study. How did it begin? Not opening this book, but opening the poems of Aristotle. Aristotle was a pagan 300 years before Christ. We studied his physics, metaphysics, cosmology, psychology, and logic. I can still quote Aristotle in Latin. I memorize it, I still know it. It was drilled into us, we needed it later on for our theology, because Thomas Aquinas was going to base himself on Aristotle. We needed to have our mind shaped in Aristotle. To this day, every priest in America and worldwide must study at least two years of the ancient philosophy of the Greeks, which is Aristotle. It's the same worldwide. And so we got into Aristotle. We did all sorts of contemporary philosophies as well. I finished in writing a thesis on Hinduism. Then we began, it was going to be four years theology of Thomas Aquinas, the main theologian of the Catholic Church. He's based on the Bible, on what the Pope says on tradition, and on Aristotle. We read, memorized, studied him about inherent righteousness, of grace coming through sacraments. He used he used Aristotle to show that physical things could give 
spiritual power. You cannot prove that from the Bible, but you can prove it from Aristotle's physics. You couldn't prove physically that Christ was in the communion bread from the scriptures or from modern physics like atoms, protons, neutrons and electrons, but you can prove it from Aristotle and Greek physics of substance and accidents. And that's why our mind was shaped by Aristotle because we needed these Greek concepts because we were rational, logical people and so if we were going to do sacraments that have power and they're physical sacraments, how can they give spiritual life? We had to explain it in, in relationship to Aristotle's physics and particularly how we have substance and accidents because you can't explain it in modern day physics. So we did that for four long years. We did a minor in studying introduction to some books of the Bible and another minor in studying redaction criticism, form criticism and higher criticism where we were taught liberal Protestant theology particularly out of Germany people like Rudolf Bootmann whereby the Bible was dissected like it was a human writing and you want to see who copied from whom it really wasn't Moses that wrote the five books the Pentateuch you know, we have got to show where it really evolved from. It goes back to Heidegger and Hegel of, of a spiritual evolution in the writings of Scripture, trying to put man's ideas over God's word. Really horrendous teaching which would throw you back on Mother Church. And that's what it did. We believed in Mother Church because of the way we were presupposing the Bible had come to us uh, through these different ways that these theologians in Germany had rationalized. Then, all these years, I was most devout, most sincere, like somebody from Croatia, the Poles, the Croatians, the Irish, some of the Hungarians, known to live Catholicism to the hilt. We had a strict regime, strict fasting, sometimes getting up in the middle of the night. Real strict regime. Absolute silence. And then different times where we did have recreation. Absolute strict regime. But over and above, I got permission to make a little whip. So I flagellate myself. I never beat myself to blood. I would beat myself to I couldn't stand it anymore. The saints I read about, they had beaten themselves to blood. I never got near it, just till I couldn't stand it anymore. And then probably the worst thing I ever did was in cold weather, like we're experiencing now, I would take cold showers to the bones as if it were cracked with coldness, and I couldn't stand the pain any longer. And then i get out. Many souls go to hell because there's nobody to suffer for them. I was intent to suffer. So this is what I was doing over and above with permission from the student master who did similar things in his life. He was devout as well. I even walked with stones in my shoes during the day so I'd suffer pain. I did quite well academically and I was well enough to go to Rome. We said we had the best Catholic university in the world, the Angelicum, as Dominicans. The Jesuits said that they had the best university in the whole world, the Gregorian. 
So it was a rivalry between the two orders, but one of the best Catholic universities in the world. Quite painful to see the sins of Rome and to be jeered and mocked by Catholics as we wore our religious garments in Rome. Quite difficult, because I was told about the holiness of the city and to see the, how few Catholics there were who practiced, to see the, in, in the immorality in the different parks, to see the prostitutes and open immorality. It, it was really painful and I kept putting out of my mind, you know, this is the holy city, this is where we have the Pope, this is the center of Catholicism, this is where we are based. We affect the whole world. And it was a very painful year as I was studying at the Angelicum. Then I was sent to the mission field. And then I started baptizing babies, about 35 every first Sunday of the month. And here we had reborn, now Christians. It was difficult because the other priests, even at the beginning, would say they don't come back. We have about 8% to ever come back. Some of the priests say, you know, we, we hatch, match, and dispatch. And I, I was gassed. You know, they, I mean, they had been in the business long, and I was in my first year. What do you mean? Well, we hatch them at baptism. We match them if they get married. Most don't. And then we dispatch them at the funeral service. And it was very hard for me then to be told this from the beginning, that I was to match, hatch, and dispatch and to have all these people coming for babies to be baptized, and I knew we were never going to see them anymore. And hearing confessions was sit, like sitting in a dumpster with all this poured on top of you. It was four hours every, every Saturday. I could see the sweat on some of the ladies' lips here, and there was sweat pouring down me. It wasn't just because it was the tropics and we didn't have air conditioning. It was what I was hearing and then week after week, the same people coming back with the same sins. It was most tempting and horrendous and very difficult for any young man. And it was what we did because that's, we, we were told we were a judge as well as a healer to say, I absolve you from all your sins. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We said it in Latin in those days. Very difficult. After a year, I got my own parish and I was sent to Mayaro, uh, where there were oil rigs of uh, the Amoco off the coast. Trinidad's quite wealthy island, and we had some quite rich people. Some had their beach houses there. And then we had the poor people uh, who had their shacks, and the ladies who worked under the coconut trees getting a dollar or two a day. And I saw that this is worse than slavery. Some of the women told me they didn't have enough food for their children. So I decided to read Juan Luis Secundo, Gutierrez, Jose Miranda, the Catholic Liberation Theology men. Very predominant in South America, Philippines, and in the Caribbean where I was. And then I had long hair in those days, and of course we had guitar music, and we put on a show but then when I would get up to preach, I would preach for about a half an hour. I would take up the missile, you know, it looked like a Bible. I would take up the missile and I'd say, we've got to come into the land of freedom. The riches, the riches of the rich people really belongs to the poor. And this is in Thomas Aquinas. That you have a right to take from 
if you're in need from the rich people. And this is again in Thomas Aquinas. And I was preaching what I was getting in Jose Miranda and the other liberation theologians. I was really preaching Marxism. And I filled a lot of churches. We as liberation theologians did not have the effect that Nicaragua had. I think I knew one of the leaders of the Black Power Revolution and met with him and talked with him. We were not like the Cardinale brothers and the others in Nicaragua. They had a revolution, the Sandinistas, that succeeded. We had a revolution at the end of the 60s into 1970 and was squashed by the government. I nearly lost my life with a machete, which we call the cutlass, and a gun, and other dramatic things. I was in the heart of liberation theology. I thank God that I was saved from that. Again, it was but God, because there again I could have lost my life fighting for political freedom and for the principles of Marxism. Then in 1972, the charismatic movement began and um, I began speaking in tongues. People told me I had one or two languages, so I was, I didn't know, I sort of got high up really early on and, you know, about falling and slaying in the spirit and I learned how to do all of that stuff. It's much easier than cold showers and <laughs> flagellating yourself. If this is what it takes to be saved, you mean it's style. And uh, I got into it, but what it did do, it brought me into the scriptures. And then it was at the beginning of that that I had my accident and I began studying the scriptures. It was going to be 14 years of search, but it was principally, it was principally there in Ephesians that I was to see what it was. I would read the book of Ephesians sometimes 20 times a day. Literally. I would read chapter 1 and I would read chapter 2 and then later on the day I would read it again. Now I did read Romans 3, Isaiah 53 and I did read of course John and others but I was searching particularly in these two chapters. For example, in chapter 1 verse 3 Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That God is blessed and worshipped and honoured. And there I had difficulty because I saw in the Bible only God is blessed, only he is worshipped, only he is the All-Holy One. In the Catholic Church we had the Blessed Mary Ever-Virgin, we had Blessed Martin the Pores, and we had many other Blessed Ones that we spoke to. And so this was really difficult how can I see that it is only God who is blessed? It was painful, and there's anybody in pain here. I know that pain. When you're utterly steeped in Catholicism and utterly used to calling Mary the Blessed Virgin Mary, and you have blessed other people that you are the saints that you're in communion with, and you are told to have communion with the dead, like it says in the New Catechism. And you read something like this. It is painful. And blessed with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. In Christ was the shock to me 
because I started to count how many times does it say in Christ in this chapter 1 and chapter 2. I discovered 18 times when Paul is talking about being right before God. It's in him, in whom? In Christ. In different ways, but the concept in Christ is 18 times in these two chapters. 42 times in the whole book. Why was that so important to me? Because in my mind, I was shaped to think that salvation was in my heart. I was pouring in sanctifying grace so that I would be good. Inwardly, just like my Catholic Church said, I would be inwardly right. And this was saying, you're right in Christ, and he's not even on earth now, it's in the heavenly places. So it was really painful. And I ask you to bear with me too, it wasn't just Catholicism, it was the different preaching I was here, the hour of decision, Billy Graham. Make a decision and accept Jesus into your heart. It, I use the same words. That's what caused me to buy Imodium and Lomatil because my stomach used to turn like a cement mixer. I, I would go back and read. I would listen to, like, you know, we'd have the Louis Palau's and all these people saying, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. If anyone would hear his voice and invite him to come in, he will come in. Accept Jesus into your heart and you have it on the authority of Scripture. I would go read, read Revelation 3. Who is being spoken to? It is the church of Laodicea. They were a church neither hot nor cold, and Christ wanted to come in to sanctify them. This is not a gospel message. It is a sanctification message to a lukewarm church. And I could see this as a priest. I'm wondering, how can these people use my Catholic words to give the gospel? It was utterly painful. And then the statements that many of the preachers, I listened also shortwave to England, they'd say, commit your life to God. Give your life to Jesus. If it came to giving, I'd give him much more. I was a way up the totem pole. You know. I had given my family. I was celibate. I was keeping my vows. I was giving everything to Jesus. And I would say, I am far more giving than these fat, rich Americans. I thought all Americans were fat and rich. So I'd say, I am giving much more than these fat, rich Americans. I'd given everything. And then I would read, He gave His life for us. Chosen from before the foundation of the world. I would read like verse 4. According as He had chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. That God said he made a choice. I would listen. I never found any evangelical saying that it's God's choice. It was always you make your decision. You make your commitment. Nobody would say God chose you before the foundation of the world. And that was utterly painful. So it wasn't simply Catholicism. It was the false evangelical message. And I could see that Billy Graham was going to 
Cardinal Cushing in Chicago and going to see the Pope. And if he thought that I am okay, who am I even to search? Who am I even to search the scripture if Billy Graham, the greatest, they say, evangelical pastor or evangelist, thinks I'm okay? And it's worse now because we have J.I. Packer, Os Guinness, Timothy Moore, reform men, Chuck Colson, Bill Bright, and on and on, saying Catholics are our brothers and sisters in Christ. If it was difficult back then, in the late 70s and 80s, it is more so today. And the same men giving the same type of false message. And I would go back. It's in Christ. It's God who has made the decision. He has predestinated. In love, he predestinated us. To be accepted in the beloved. And I would wrestle with that. Who says to be accepted in Christ? They all twist it the other way around. To be accepted in your own heart. They say the same as my Catholicism. I couldn't ever hear one person give this verse. Accepted in the beloved. And then I stood up at the priest conferences and I would begin to say this. I'd say, maybe it's not our rituals, and maybe it's not all the works we do. Maybe it's not uh, baptizing babies and giving absolution. Maybe we are accepted in Christ, the beloved, the glory of his grace. Maybe it's just God who works. And they would say, who do you think you are? Are you better than the Pope? Are you better than the millions and millions of Catholics worldwide? Who do you think you are? And my answer for a few years was the same answer every year and at smaller meetings. I'd say, well, I'm like Oscar. I don't know if you know Oscar. At that time, Oscar was on Sesame Street and Oscar was the Muppet in the tin can and he was always coming up and saying his piece and nobody liked to hear Oscar and they would put the lid on him and push him down. and all I could say is, I'm like Oscar, I'll be back up. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I didn't know what else to say. And uh, it, it was quite painful because I was quoting the scripture, but I didn't have a foundation. In 79, but God, God had something to happen in 79. In 79, I was invited, first of all, to Vancouver, British Columbia, and then across the border in Seattle, St. Stephen's Catholic Church, I was staying in a Christian home and I found Strong's Concordance. And I looked under Word. Thy Word is truth. All scriptures given by inspiration of God. Scripture cannot be broken. And to a small group, about 35, I preached on God's Word being absolute. And man was I listening because I never heard this before. I was preaching to myself you know, and uh, trying to think that maybe this could be so. I went back to Vancouver, British Columbia. I had 400 people in a church. And then these Americans, for the first time in my life, they, they planted on my dress, you know, my chasuble, a microphone. And I was free to walk up and down the aisle of a Catholic church. So I took my Catholic Bible and I said to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. 
I said, for Christ Jesus, it was Scripture is absolute. Scripture cannot be broken. Peter said it's like a light in a dark place. The Apostle Paul said not to think above what is written. And I went on and on. Some of them I had memorized, other ones I had to read it. But I was now walking up and down a Catholic church proclaiming that the scripture alone, it seemed to be good because he got a big collection and these Catholic Catholic people, something must have been good. So three days later, very painful, my father being an IRE man, and it was the day that Lord Mountbatten was blown up in a lake in West Ireland. I had met Mountbatten when I was in Ireland and visiting one time, a lovely, gracious Christian, blown up by the IRA. I came from IRA stock. My father was an old IRA man. This is very painful that again, a Bible believer is blown up by the IRA in my own Ireland. And I'm really feeling pain as I read the papers in Vancouver. And then a phone call comes through to the house where I am. And they say, you've got to come to the Archbishop's house, Archbishop Carney. He started using some street language and telling me I know better. It's the Catholic Church that is the authority. The Pope is infallible. We look to the Pope word. And you know better. You are not to preach ever again in this diocese. And you are to return to Trinidad. And so, humbled, I returned to Trinidad. I was never again to preach in Vancouver, British Columbia. But then when I got back to Trinidad, I was different. Then I had a word that was the word of God. And I began to say then at the priest meetings, when I'd say, quoting Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For it is by grace that you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I would begin to say, when asked, how can you say this? I'd say, that's what God says in his word. That's what the scripture says. If God has said it, it is true. It was then that the pressure really began, and it was... It was difficult because we had a, 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 a we had a huge following of um, Catholics. After the Hindus, we were the next biggest religion, and I had a church where I could hold 500 people or so, 2,000 at a funeral, a big church and many outstations. I took down all the graven images because God said not to make them. Then somebody came and showed me the cutlass, an Indian man, said, we love our images. And I fear the edge of the machete, and I put back Jesus and Mary. I only had them wrapped up in a cupboard. And um, at that stage, I was still fearing. When you've seen people with a cutlass chopped like a pig and bleed to death, it is the most fearful way to die. I, I put them back. And uh, because I didn't fear the archbishop, but I did fear the razor edge of the machete. And um, but I kept digging in the scriptures. I kept digging in the scriptures. 
and I said, I saw that the forgiveness of sin is preached through the gospel. I saw that if you sin, we have God who is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And I would tell the people, go to God and confess your sins. Only the old ladies who confessed that they were disobedient to their parents and they missed mass and they didn't miss mass and they, you know, their parents were dead but they were still confessing their disappearance. And I gave them absolution because I want to hurt them. But the, the other people, I said, no, confess your sins to God. And there was a, a real constant trail to the archbishop's house. It was really getting difficult. Uh, none was set to recycle my brain and tell, bring me back into Catholicism. She was a professor, and she told me that Jesus' blood is the same as Romero's blood, and that we must suffer and willing to sacrifice ourselves and lay down our lives like Jesus so that we can help save the world, the participation in the sufferings of Christ. I'd say it's redemption through his blood, like the scriptures say. And what this, we sang this morning, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood. That it is the blood of Christ, and that is not compared to any human blood. And we stopped seeing each other because I just could not reconcile. It was getting really hard now, and it was getting towards the end of my 14 years of search. And then one of my lay ministers came. He called me. They said his wife was dying. Went to his house. His wife was well and alive. He said, I want to show you this pistol. He said, I want to shoot you. If I do it now, the police will get me and I'll be hanged. But I'm going to look for an opportunity to shoot you. We do not like what you say. And so I was now living in fear. People came at night. If you know West Indian situations, those galvanized roof, they would throw stones on the galvanized at night time so I would feel afraid. My generator, because we lost power many times, was set up to explode. An ice pick was put in the radiator of my car, which is most dangerous in tropical weather. And I was now living under fear. It was... It was really hard, and like a good Irish man, I started to depend on the bottle. I started to take rum, and I'd take about this much at night to sleep. And then I would defend my biblical faith and go to conferences and talk to the priests. And even on the golf course, I tried to share, and some of the priests would mock me. And then I'd go back and I'd take another shot of rum at night. And then I would add two beers before I took the rum so that they have a foundation, uh, you know, to, to get ready because I couldn't sleep with the shot of rum. So it was, I was getting worse and worse. And what undid me, and I really ask you to hear this word, was verse 1 of chapter 2 of Ephesians that I used to read and read. But you who were dead in trespasses and sins. I was the good priest. I cared for the poor, went to the hospitals. I was the good, devout priest. And scripture said, dead in trespasses and sins. That I was wrestling with. And then I said, I can understand salvation on the scripture alone, 
through grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, and all praise and worship to God alone. But am I a Christian? So I couldn't talk to any priest, so I went into my own office to talk to myself. It's not good, but sometimes you've got to do it. So I went into the seat where the visitor would sit looking over the empty chair, and here am I telling the empty chair, you know, I have real problems because I think I'm a Christian, and I think I understand it, but I'm living a wicked life. I have wicked thoughts and wicked desires. I think I'm good, and I think I'm a Christian. I understand it. And then my counsel back to myself was, that's your Aristotle. Aristotle taught, if you understand something, it is yours. Aquinas taught that as well. All comes through the intellect and understanding. It's not so in Scripture. The Spirit has to convict you that you are dead in sins and there's nothing you can do. And this is a real hard message that was coming to me as I was counseling myself. Me dead? Yes, you're dead. And there's no hope for you. And you're going downhill in your dependence on liquor and you're no more saved than any on prostitute or wicked person in the world and you're worse because you've been a Pharisee and thought that you could add to Christ's finished work. And so that same evening I got on my face literally on the carpet in my room and I cried out to God, Save me, Father in heaven. Forgive me for my years of trying to save myself through my penances and my sacraments. I believe that sincerely. I did not know I was spitting in the face of Christ and his finished work. I did it sincerely. Forgive me. Forgive me for all the times I whispered into people's ears who were dying that you can participate in the sufferings of Christ. Forgive me for giving a damning message from most of my priesthood. Forgive me for my arrogance and thinking that I was good. I am dead. I can do nothing. I cannot even believe on Christ unless it is by your grace. And I literally, I know what, what Valerie was saying in her testament, I literally got down and I cried. I pleaded with God. Place me in Christ Jesus. Make me acceptable in him. Father, that I may know your grace. Father, that I may know you. That I would be in Christ. And I literally cried and cried. And then, Father, I believe in Christ Jesus. I accept him alone. Father, I accept Christ's finished work and that alone. That I may know you and rejoice with you. And then I cried and cried and cried. And finally got up and I did what I always did. I had two or three beers and then I had my rum and I went to sleep. But the next morning it was different. The next morning I had a joy. I had a joy unspeakable and full of glory like Peter says. And midday came and I didn't need any wine. And the day passed and I wanted to praise God and worship him. And night came and I didn't need anything. I didn't need any liquor. It was 
the grace of God. And then did I get up in the church to preach. And then the fireworks started. It was the archbishop was, I was to be out of there. I was to be sent to Mayaro. That's where I had been as a liberation theologian. It was infested with voodoo, which we call Shango. And I knew, well, even where I was at the time in Sangra Gandhi, in the Torah, we had voodoo. And I used to, in my search, I began to expose how wicked they were. And I knew that if I went to Mayaro, I was dead. Because the witch doctors, in contact with Satan, and physically will attack you. So, I was before God. What do I do? I love my Catholic people. And it was like the Father saying to me, come out from among them and be separate, and I will be a father to you. Then I had got to love. It was about two, three months in this in-between period. The word Abba, Father. I will be a father to you. Because I didn't have a visa for the States. I didn't have money. And the Lord was saying, I will look after you. Not just have placed you in Christ, but I will look after you completely. And so I said, yes, Lord, on condition that I can love my Catholic people. They are my people. They are my blood. This is my culture. This is who I am. This is where I have found the gospel is in my Catholic church that I may love my Catholic people always. And with that, like agreement between me and the Abba Father, I left Trinidad, went to Barbados, prayed for a week that seemed like a month. People without asking me gave me 700 US dollars and people gave me western clothes and shoes because I only had tropical clothes. And I came to Canada I stayed in a Catholic home, but I only went to Bible-believing churches. And they eventually told me to leave. I phoned across the border into Yakima, Wapato, exactly, to a Catholic couple. And they said, we've left Catholicism. Come and stay with us a week. I went and stayed six months and started to get built up in the scriptures. It was just precious to see the Word of God. To see the Word of God. One of the most difficult things with that couple, I said, I'm born again by the Spirit. I stand in the Scriptures alone, grace alone. They said, have you dealt with Catholicism? I said, what you mean? Have you called worshipping the bread idolatry? Have you called calling up the dead necromancy? Have you renounced your priestly office that Christ alone is high priest in the New Testament. I said, that's like a razor blade going across my eye. I said, don't say those things. They said, unless you deal with your Catholicism, you're going to be like Lazarus in his grave clothes. And so five days later, in a house that wasn't furnished, just a carpet, I took two couples with me. And before them, and of course before God most of all, I got on the floor and one by one I went from my infant baptism right through my life. I forgave my parents. I forgave all who put it on me. I asked I would never have bitterness. But I got 
freed. I was already saved, but I went. It was painful in the extreme. It took me five hours at a break for lunch, and five hours to get to do that, which you could do probably in 20 minutes, but it took me five hours. All through the 14 years, my stomach used to turn because of the false evangelicalism and Catholicism. From that day, my stomach stabilized. Uh, I had been diagnosed as a celiac, as somebody who has a bad stomach condition. It was finished. I was now, for the first time, able to put on some weight. I was about 132 pounds. And I came up to what my normal weight now is, about 150. Uh, it was the grace of God, and I started getting into Scripture. Now, if I could say this, because it is precious to me, um, and normally I don't like to bring it in, but I think I should bring it in this morning. I went to a church, looked at windows, and saw there was an advertisement for uh, a, a missionary in Puerto Rico. So I'm going to knock on the pastor's door, and I say, I want to apply for the position. And he said, who recommends you from the deacon board? Who recommends you in the church? I didn't know the church. I didn't know anything. He said, and he said, do, do you have a wife? And I said, no. And he said, well, you know, you've got to be accountable. All our missionaries are married and, uh, you know, all our pastors are married. This is biblical, you know, man of one wife. I said, do you put it in the bulletin or how does one go about this sort of thing? I was, you know, I was joking him. I knew. And he said, no, you get before Indies. I don't have social security. I have nothing that these Americans talk about. I have nothing. I have two months on my visa left. I said, in the Old Testament, and it's God who chose a bride for his people, you know, the old Jewish thing with God. I said, Father, you've got to pick somebody for me and I'm not choosable because <laughs> I don't have anything that a man has when he gets married. I said, you show me who she is, I'll propose to her and we'll get married. So, um, so he showed me, I didn't know this lady after four months. I'd been at the church for a long time and I met her, I went home. She knew about liberation theology. She read and it was great talking to her and then after about four hours or so talking to her I really came down to how did she know God and it was just a wonderful testimony and I, I said in my spirit this lady is the one God has chosen and for three nights I couldn't sleep it wasn't it wasn't now liquor <laughs> or needed to sleep it was I felt God's conviction that God had chosen this lady how am I going to tell her I don't have anything. So, I was going to get the dentist about four or five fillings and the dentist said, you must stay in Yakima before you drive back to the farm. You've got to rest because you won't be in a state to drive. So, I went to her house and her dad and herself invited me to dinner. And then afterwards, I said, I think God has convicted me to marry you, but to tell you the truth, I, you know, I like that God has convicted you, but I really don't like you. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> so uh, I thought she was too fiery and too, you know, too um, too brittle, you know. But I did like her testimony, but I didn't like her as a person. Uh, <laughs> so I said, I really don't like you. I was trying to be honest. So she said she returned the compliment. She said, from the 
I have been praying that God would bring the husband for me. And from the first day I met you, I knew that God had chosen you. But you said, I would like to tell you also that I don't like you. <laughs> so, um, the romance began on a, <laughs> on a conviction that was from God. And uh, the honeymoon and the first few months uh, were sort of difficult because <laughs> we had a really said that we felt convicted of God and but we have grown to love each other and Lynn my beloved wife and now deeply love each other and we have grown in grace we eventually her dad gave us a thousand dollars we went to Atlanta we got into Charles Stanley's church where I met a good reform man who introduced me to the doctors of grace and then we went out to China Drama Now, the year of Tiananmen Square. I was the first to tell our students that the blood was flowing in the square on the day of Tiananmen Square. But the drama had started before that with the air conditioning man who said he'd never be Christian. He saw his parents bleed where the, the communists had broken their ribs till they bled into their lungs and died. I'll never be Christian. I heard him make a profession of faith. I saw others come to the Lord. I baptized Leo Tao in a lake and after he made a profession and I was seeing drama. People come and their lives turned around and that they had the same joy that I had. And it was amazing. All I have now is my Bible and I preach the gospel. I don't have any robes. And people are changed. God has always taught me light and darkness. And that year in China was wonderful. I came back and did a Bible course in San Leandro. And then I came back to my first love. Father, give myself and my wife. I want a ministry to Catholics. And that's what I do today. And we reach out worldwide. I think it's about 18 languages we're in. And we have a web page. We have many books in different languages, particularly the priest book. And uh, lots of material. We hope to have many languages on our web page in about two months' time. We hope to go on cable access here, even in Long Island, and um, right in different states. I don't know, just me. I'm 65, and my wife, who is not very healthy, but... Lord is using us. We have some volunteers. We're just a tiny ministry where we're seeing precious Catholics come to the Lord. And that's my heart. And if you're here this morning, I just ask you to see what it says here in the scripture. But God, who is rich in mercy. That is spoken to you. It is God who is rich in mercy even when we were dead in trespasses and sins. How can you or anyone say, I don't accept the love of God? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If you can say that you're a sinner and who of us cannot, it's even a teaching in the Catholic Church that all have original sin. How can you say you're not? If you can admit that you're a sinner, 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. That is how serious it is. Now is the day of salvation. And if you are sincerely Catholic, I was sincerely Catholic, Christ has a real hard word. Now, Christ was loving, but sometimes he wants to unsettle us. You know what I mean? Uh, those who are into Catholicism deeply, I'm born a Catholic, I'll die Catholic. You know, it's my parents, my tradition, I'm going to die Catholic. Like the Pharisees, they believed in their tradition and they believed in their rituals. The Catholic Church is the same, establishing their own righteousness. What was Christ's words to the devout Pharisees, like the devout Catholics? He said to them, if you remain in your tradition, you will die in your sins. Really hard. You're going to die in your sins. You're going to be separated from God all of this life and for eternity in hell. It's the same with the Greek Orthodox or any religion. If you remain in your tradition, you will die in your sins. Why is that so serious? Because it says God commands all men everywhere to repent. Religion is the greatest sin Worse than adultery, because it's spiritual adultery. Worse than fornication and drugs, because it's proclaiming that your power is the power of the Holy Spirit, is speaking against God. Religion is the greatest sin. Why Christ rebuked the Pharisees and called them blind leaders of the blind, because they were taking away salvation, closing the door on precious people. If you remain in your tradition, you will die for sure in your sin. But the word, the good news is in Paul, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If you admit that you're a sinner, Christ has lived a perfect life and a perfect sacrifice. He has substituted for you. You can now have a hundred percent perfection before God as you're accepted in the beloved. And you can have your sins washed away to be cleansed in the blood of the Lamb. You can become a new creature simply by trusting today and not saying I'll put it off because the commandment of God cannot be put off. Who knows? There may never be a moment like this again. You cannot keep God waiting. This is not an invitation. Christ said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. It is a commandment. How dare anyone refuse the commandment of Christ, that we believe on him and him alone? We rest on him. We rest on him. If it is painful, I understand your pain. But the pain will be there until it is changed into the glory that is in the face of Christ Jesus. 
And God commanded his light to shine out of darkness, to give us the knowledge of the light of the glory in the face of Christ Jesus. As you look to him, the author and finisher of our faith, you are convicted like I was that you're a sinner and you trust on him and it is joy and then a love for those who are in your family and we pray that would be like Paul said you shall be saved you and your household and that we would see also your family come to the Lord and the wonder of who our God is that we would praise him I sometimes get torn between the two verses that I love most of all. Jeremiah 23, 6. This is the name by which he shall be called God our righteousness. That God's righteousness is mine in Christ. But also this verse 6, as we read from Ephesians. Being accepted in the beloved to the praise of the glory of his grace. And that becomes your song today and forever. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen. Praise, worship, and honor, and glory be to him. Amen and amen. Thank you. Praise God. Thank you for listening. If the Lord touches you, we'd love to hear from you. Our address is... P.O. Box 192, Del Valley, that's D-E-L-V-A-L-L-E, Texas, 78617. Or visit our website at www.bereanbeacon.org. That's B-E-R-E-A-N-Beacon.org. For he has made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, 
I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.